You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Welcome to episode 55 of the GDPR Weekly Show. And as regular listeners will know, I like to start with a shout out to our new listeners. And this week we have new listeners in London, Portsmouth, Birmingham, Preston, Ipswich, Swansea, Torquay, Guildford, Oxford, Manchester, Cardiff, Norwich, Derby, Havant and Worcester, all in the UK. We also have new listeners in Leinster, Meath, County Wicklow and County Kildare in Ireland, in Paris, Haute-Sobel and Esson in France, in Barcelona in Spain, in Haino in Belgium, in Rotterdam, Amsterdam and The Hague, all in the Netherlands, in Hamburg in G- and Holstein in Germany, in Copenhagen and Hoverstaden in Denmark, in Uppsala and Stockholm in Sweden, in Hordaland in Norway, Helsinki in Finland, the Bastortistan Republic in Russia, Kiev in the Ukraine, Bucharest and Zsuzsu in Romania, Bern and Valais in Switzerland, Vienna in Austria, Milan in Italy, Nomos Iraculu in Greece, Nicosia in Cyprus, Beirut in Lebanon, Cairo in Egypt, Lagos in Nigeria, Comas in Namibia, Tamil Nadu and Karnataka in India, Manila in the Philippines, Inshom in South Korea, Tokyo in Japan, Sydney, Melbourne and Perth all in Australia, Santiago in Chile, Sao Paulo and Minas Gerais in Brazil, Atlantico in Colombia, Quebec and Ontario in Canada, and then in the USA, new listeners this week in San Francisco, Raleigh, Boston, Los Angeles, Minneapolis, Dallas, Rochester, San Diego, Austin, Houston, Atlanta, Battle Creek, Phoenix, Washington DC, Cincinnati, Chicago, Seattle, Portland, Spartanburg, Salisbury and Greensboro. So a special call out to our new listeners in Nicosia, in Cyprus, in Beirut, in Lebanon, in Lagos, in Nigeria, in Comas, in Namibia, and in Santiago, in Chile, and in Atlantico, in Colombia, as you are your, our first listeners to the show from your respective countries. So a very big welcome to you. And of course a welcome to all of our regular listeners who join every week for 30 minutes or so to catch up on the latest happenings in the world of GDPR. And as always, if you have any feedback on the programme, please do send it to me by email to podcast at insurety.co.uk that's E-N-S-U-R-E-T-Y.co.uk or go to the podcast page on our website where you'll find all the contact details. A number of people have asked just quite what do we do at Insurity as well as producing the UK's only dedicated GDPR podcast. Well, we do lots of things that are GDPR related, perhaps not unsurprisingly. We do data audits, we do an awful lot of GDPR training and retraining and refresher training. Uh, We also provide an external DPO service 
and we also provide an EEA representative service in respect of GDPR. So if any of those services are of interest to you, then please do always feel free to get in touch with us. You can find our contact details via the website at www.insurity.co.uk or just drop us an email to podcast at insurity.co.uk and one of our team will get back to you just as soon as we can. So in a few moments, I'll be telling you what's coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. Check us out on Facebook. So coming up in this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show, we have a look at how UK political parties are doing in responding to data subject access requests. We have an article that Google have discovered a significant data breach in the Apple iPhone. DSK Bank, a Bulgarian bank, have been fined half a million pounds for a data breach involving physical documents. We have news of a data breach at Teletext Holidays, which involves the loss of a significant number of voice recordings. We have an article on how GDPR is unintentionally helping some phishing attack. We have news that Google is to be fined by the FTC in the US for collecting children's data on YouTube without parental permission. We have an article looking at when are joint controllers jointly and severally liable and what are they jointly and severally liable for. And then a final article that Microsoft has opened a cloud storage facility in Germany for users within Europe which will help to solve one of the issues which some of the European ICOs have had with the way that Microsoft has been storing data for its cloud applications. So as usual quite a mixed bag for you this week. Hope you find the information interesting and informative and I hope you find the program as a whole entertaining and as always I look forward to hearing any feedback that you may have. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Well, in what promises to be a momentous week in the UK politics scene, with Boris Johnson announcing the prorogation of Parliament uh, from sometime between the 9th and the 12th of September, right through to Monday the 14th of October, it's perhaps a good week to look at the number of complaints raised with the ICO for each of the different mainstream political parties in the UK so far in 2019. And we're grateful to Sky News for the data in this case. They made a number of freedom of information requests which collectively have shown that members of the public made 110 complaints to the ICO about political parties so far in 2019. Of these, by far the majority were about Labour. Uh, 64 of the complaints made to the ICO have been about Labour, whilst the Conservatives and UKIP have had 12 complaints each against them. And so a big difference there. And uh, 46 of the 64 complaints made against Labour were about its handling of subject access requests. For the next most complained about topic, disclosure of data, 
the ICO only received five complaints about the party. Pascal Crow, Data and Democracy Project Officer at Digital Rights Campaigners, the Open Rights Group, who filed a subject access request with all nine main UK political parties, said they'd received a response from every party except for the Labour Party. This is a party that claims in its privacy policy that it puts individuals' rights at the heart of how it collects, holds and uses data, said Pastel Crow. Actually, what we're seeing is that individuals' rights are being left out in the cold. For the Labour Party, a spokesman said, it's to be expected that a party with far more members than all the others put together would have more of these inquiries. We're working hard to process outstanding requests and we're on track with our plan, agreed with the ICO to do so quickly. For the ICO, a spokesperson said the ICO is in contact with the Labour Party regarding a number of data protection matters, particularly its lawful obligations around subject access requests. These inquiries are currently ongoing. The ICO's data only said whether a complaint had been made about a political party, not its decision on whether the party had complied with GDPR. But it's sort of quite worrying in a way that a political party the size of Labour, yes, I appreciate they are much larger than any other political party, but it's surprising that they're having such difficulties meeting uh, data subject access requests. You'd think it'd be something that they would have pretty well a smooth process for. Of the nine political parties featured in the ICO's figures, three, Change UK, the Democratic Unionist Party and Plaid Cymru had no complaints against them at all. The Liberal Democrats had nine complaints. The Scottish National Party had ten. The Green Party had two. And the Scottish Conservative Party had one. Doubtless, as this year progresses, if there is a general election, as seems to be looking likely, then there will be more data subject access requests to all the political parties and so I perhaps would say to all political parties in the UK if you don't already have a smooth process in place to deal with the data subject access requests now's the time to start looking at putting one in place and of course I'm going to say that if you need any help with that please do get in touch with us. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host Keith Budden. Probably the largest data-related story this week has to be the news from Google that their researchers had claimed they'd found a massive security breach in the Apple iPhone. The Apple iPhone has always been thought to be a gold standard, really, when it came to data privacy, and so that the breach has been discovered has come as a bit of a shock to, I think, many within the mobile phone community. Uh, The issue at hand was discovered by Google security researchers who claim the infiltration has been going on for at least two years. The implant was inserted when users visited unspecified hacked websites, according to Ian Beer of Google's security research team. Apple is set to unveil a new set of iPhones in September, and it's unclear whether the revelation of this hack will affect those plans. But it does raise questions on the security of an operating system that's largely, as we said, always been viewed as very safe and reliable when compared with other systems. Google say that, according to their um, investigations, 
The malware from the hacks could allow others to read all the database files on the victim's phone, including messages between users on such encrypted platforms as WhatsApp, iMessage, Telegram and others. Gmail and Doodle Hangout information could also be read and the person's contacts and photos accessed. Passwords to other devices could also be compromised if they were stored unencrypted on the iPhone. And in an age where cryptocurrency and banking are more and more done online, the potential for damage to any particular user is extreme. Beer said the implant has access to almost all of the personal information available on the device, which it is able to upload unencrypted to the attacker's server. There was no evidence that any people were specifically targeted. Just simply visiting the hacked site was enough for the exploit server to attack your device, and if it was successful, to install a monitoring implant. The Project Zero team, the team at Google investigating this, estimated that the sites received thousands of visitors per week. Beer, the spokesman from Google, has not identified the hacked websites, nor has he said how users can determine if their devices have been infected. The hacked sites were being used in indiscriminate watering hole attacks against their visitors. He added, the Google team said they identified 14 iPhone vulnerabilities related to five exploits. Seven of the vulnerabilities were related to Safari, the iPhone's web browser. Google claims that it notified Apple of the vulnerabilities on the 1st of February and the iPhone maker said it had patched them on February the 7th. Beer described the research undertaken by Project Zero as a huge effort to pull apart and document almost every byte of a multi-year in-the-wild exploitation campaign. He warned that it was always possible that other hacks may still be undiscovered. Apple was expected to unveil its latest iPhones at an event at its headquarters in Cupertino, California on September the 10th. Three new iPhones are expected to be debuted. So it'll be really interesting to see what more comes of this. Um, It's to be hoped that this is a one-off and that relatively few people would have been affected because even at a few thousand visitors if you compare that with the number of iPhones in use across the world clearly it's it's a minuscule number but nonetheless it's worrying that a way has been found to infiltrate the iPhone and doubtless it's something which Apple will be issuing a statement on in due course and if we get that in the next week or two we will of course bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR weekly show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Perhaps setting out to prove that whatever other EU countries may fine organisations for GDPR breaches, Bulgaria wasn't going to be seen as an easy option. Um, This week, Bulgaria's DSK Bank, a unit of Hungary's OTP group has been fined 1 million levs or to put that into context 569,930 US dollars which is around about 468,000 UK pounds so almost half a million pounds for a data breach that affected over 33,000 clients. The Bulgarian ICO, the Commission for Personal Data Protection said on Wednesday The personal data watchdog said the full names, addresses, copies of ID cards as well as bank account numbers and property deed data of some 33,492 people who had taken loans from the DSK bank had been improperly disclosed and accessed by third parties. 
personal data of loan guarantors, spouses and contracting parties of a part of over 23,000 loan dossiers had also been breached, it said. The Commission said they'd launched a probe into the leak after DSK said in June that it had been approached by a Bulgarian former convict who claimed to have a database with personal details of its clients. DSK said at the time that it had carried out internal checks that showed the bank systems had not been hacked, suggesting any leak of data must have occurred through other illegal means. In a statement, the bank said that DSK Bank was fined by the Commission for Personal Data Protection over a non-digital data theft carried out against it. DSK Bank accepts the fine and cooperates with the authorities to further improve its personal data protection measures. The Commission said it had fined the bank for failing to introduce proper technical and organisational measures to guarantee the confidentiality of clients' personal data at all times. Now, I think this case is interesting in two ways. One, perhaps in the past we would have expected the Bulgarian um, ICO to have been more lenient in its fine, but they're obviously, as I say, determined to prove they're going to be as hard as other regimes across Europe. But secondly, that this emphasises something which we certainly have been teaching our clients right from day one. And it's a really important part of GDPR, is that GDPR, yes, it is an awful lot, of course, about electronic data. But it's not just about electronic data. It's about paper documents and how you ensure their physical security as well. And it's one area which is often in our experience, particularly when we carry out GDPR audits, to be overlooked. So do think about your physical security, not just your data security. Do think about how you keep sure that documents are kept securely within your organisation and that, for example, filing cabinets are locked at night, that documents aren't left out on people's desks, that it's not possible for a pile of documents to suddenly just get blown out of a window if there's a gust of wind. All these sort of things are things you need to think about. And as always, if you need help thinking about them or help with guidance on what sort of things you should be looking for, then please do get in touch with us via our email at podcast at insurity.co.uk or visit our website at https colon slash slash www.insurity.co.uk. Check us out on Facebook. Verdict revealed this week that they had discovered a significant data breach affecting British travel company Teletext Holidays. The data breach involves some 212,000 customer call audio files, which is believed were left unprotected on an online server, in fact in this case an Amazon Web Services server, for three years, potentially exposing customer names, email addresses, home addresses, phone numbers and dates of birth. Truly Travels, trading as teletext holidays was formed out the once popular television information text service teletext it now advertises packaged holidays online and completes bookings over the telephone in its investigation verdict discovered that the files which have since been removed were on an unsecured amazon web services server in total there were some 532,000 individual files of these 212,000 were audio files from Teletext customers contacting India-based Teletext call centres. The calls all took place between the 10th of April 2016 and the 10th of August 2016. The calls ranged from a few minutes up to an hour 
and based on the accents of the people involved in the calls, appear to involve UK customers. In recordings, customers can be heard booking holidays, amending bookings, inquiring about trips and making complaints. Details about each holiday, including the flight time, the location, the cost, can also be heard. In conversations where a holiday is booked, customers also tell Teletext Holidays employees partial card details, i.e. the type of the card, the name on the card and the expiry date. However, instead of saying their card number and three-digit security number, the CVV number, the number on the back of the card, customers type them into the keypad on the phone, thereby protecting the most serious financial information. In a very small number of calls, verdicts say they heard customers begin to say their card number out loud before the call centre operator interjects and tells them to use the keypad. The names and dates of both of accompanying passengers, such as partners and children, can also be heard. For their part, as soon as they were contacted, Teletext Holidays removed all 532,000 files without delay. In a statement, a Truly Travel spokesperson said, we are in the process of reporting the matter to the ICO and we will fully comply with our wider legal obligations. The company is taking all appropriate steps to ensure this situation does not reoccur in the future. In some of the calls, Teletext customers continued to be recorded while they'd been put on hold. And, for example, couples were heard talking privately amongst themselves and in one, a mother can be heard trying to calm her crying children while she waits. In another... A couple is placed on hold for several minutes and they can be heard discussing the booking before whispering, I'm going to hang up. The files, it's understood, were stored in a data repository titled Speech Analytics. In addition to the audio files, Verdict also discovered 9,000 VTT files, VTT being a format for providing captions to audio files. The customer calls appear to have been received as part of a call centre analytics project. When Teletext were asked whether Indian technology company Zen3 were involved in this data breach, Teletext Holidays said it is not the case. It is known that in February 2016, Teletext Holidays implemented the Natural Language Artificial Intelligence Analytics System to turn call centre conversations into text. In the exposed data, approximately 9,000 of the phone calls are accompanied with text transcripts potentially making it easier for a malicious hacker to scrape those for personal data. Although, of course, if you've got this data, if someone's obtained this data, they're probably not going to mind listening to the um, tools to extract the information that they want because they can use that information potentially for identity theft and so on. Personal data, such as email addresses and dates of birth, will always prove useful for anyone trying to pretend to be someone else. It's common for malicious hackers to go on to sell these databases containing personal data on underground forums, the so-called dark web, but it's not yet known whether this data has appeared on the dark web at all. So, you're probably thinking, well, since this data relates to 2016 and GDPR didn't come into force to the 25th of May 2018, does GDPR really apply to this case? Well, it's an interesting legal issue, but our belief is that it probably does. Because the rules of GDPR say that the company must react within 
72 hours of when they become aware of the data breach. And since it would appear that that Teletext Holidays only became aware of this when they were contacted by Verdict, then our personal belief is that they probably do have a case to answer under GDPR. Now, as you probably all know, under GDPR, the maximum fine or maximum penalty that can be imposed for a data breach is 4% of their annual turnover. In the year ending 2018, Trudy Travel, trading as Teletext Holidays, reported a turnover of £152 million, which would put the maximum possible fine somewhere around £6 million. Now, whether the ICO looked to impose a fine and whether they looked to impose a fine of that magnitude is probably still some months away, and we'll keep you up to date with that as we go forward in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. But... I think given that it's audio data, which is, to my knowledge, the first time that audio data has fallen foul of GDPR in such a large way, and that the ICO will probably be looking to set an example, rather as they did with British Airways, then I think Truly Travel, Taytex Holidays, could well be looking at a fine into the millions of pounds. Because the recording of the hacking of tool recordings or the loss of tool recordings is likely to be seen as being very privacy intrusive. Now it's got to be said that Teletext Holidays for their part did react very quickly once they became aware of the problem. Um, they, it's understood that they removed the files within two hours of Verdict notifying the company. And it was when the ICO come to consider the case, that is something which uh, probably is something that's going to work in Teletext Holiday's favour. But uh, we don't yet know how the ICO are going to respond on this one, but we will keep you up to date, of course, as we always do in future episodes of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Business email compromised... BEC attacks targeting American companies are exploding in volume with an increase of over 476% in incidents between quarter 4 of 2017 and quarter 4 of 2018. Up as well is email fraud with companies experiencing an increase of some 225%. These highly targeted attacks use social engineering to identify specific company employees usually those who work in the finance department, and then convince these employees to wire large sums of money to third-party banking accounts owned by the attackers. While many older versions of phishing utilise malicious URLs or attachments to perpetrate their crimes, BEC criminals are much savvier. They spoof the actual company domain that they're targeting, creating convincingly realistic emails that employees believe are legitimate. In addition, these fraudsters utilise what's called a dynamite phishing approach. They send vast numbers of fake emails out under multiple spoofed identities to increasingly larger numbers of targets within the same organisation. They work on the pure theory that if you um, send enough, that even if half of 1% take it up, it's the old common phishing algorithm that 
you put enough out there, even if half of 1% fall for it, then you make lots of money. So they worked on the basis that eventually someone will unwittingly fall for the scheme, rewarding the scammers with a huge financial windfall. It's believed that in this year alone, some $1.1 billion has potentially been lost this way. Um, these numbers align with numbers reported by the FBI, Federal Bureau of Investigation, in the US. The FBI state that BEC scams have continued to grow and evolve and are targeting businesses of all sizes, from large to small, and now include personal transactions as well. They also reported that between December 2016 and May 2018, there was a 136% increase in identified global losses, and that scams have been reported in all 50 states of the US and in 150 other countries around the world, including the UK, by the way. Critics of the recent GDPR privacy rule enactment point to this sharp rise in cybercrime as being a direct result of an unintended interpretation of the regulation that allows criminals to effectively mask their identities online. It's the old law of unintended consequences. Registrars of domain names faced with the potential of massive fines for GDPR violations have resorted to being overly cautious when it comes to revealing any private information on the registrants of a domain. In many cases, registrars are refusing to share any information with anyone, including organisations and brand holders with legitimate public safety concerns. This approach to privacy has led to the unintended consequence of making it easier for individuals and or entities with less than honourable intentions to effectively disappear in the online cyberspace. Faced with the ability to create malicious domains and operate online with anonymity, criminals are registering websites and email addresses created specifically to spoof legitimate businesses and employees. As a result, cybercrime has grown into a $600 billion a year business and is expected to continue to grow until these issues are resolved. So to give an example, if it was, I don't know, let's suppose... Let's take the BBC as an example. It may well be that the BBC owned domain names bbc.co.uk, bbc.org, bbc.com, but they may not own, for example, bbc.net. So what these um, people would do is they will register the domain bbc.net. They will then send an email that looks exactly the same as one that comes from a legitimate BBC email address. And unless the person replying is very careful and looks at it very, very carefully, they won't spot that it's not genuine and chances are they believe the request to transfer the information to pay the bill or the invoice which may or may not be attached to the email. And so it's an interesting case, as we say, of the law of unintended consequences. Um, United States Attorney Nick Hanna released a statement concerning the indictment saying, today we've taken a major step to disrupt criminal networks that use BEC schemes romance scams and other frauds to fleece victims. This indictment sends a message that we will identify perpetrators no matter where they reside and we will cut off the flow of ill-gotten gains. In the recent example, federal prosecutors in California arrested 14 people and charged 66 more with fraud in a conspiracy they say was tied to Nigeria and intended to defraud millions of dollars out of victims. Details of the charges have not been released. Perhaps it's an example where there needs to be some 
bringing together of minds to find a way how um, domain registrars in particular can release details of domains and uh, who's registered them without actually fearing that they could be in breach of GDPR by doing so. Now, I think some of this is an education exercise because one of the things that GDPR does allow you to do is release information where you have a legal obligation to do so. And I think perhaps it's a case of, um, yeah, perhaps some better education is needed of domain registration companies. Uh, it's something I'll give some thought to and 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 uh, bring back to a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. It's being reported in Washington that Google are to pay some 150 to 200 million dollars to settle allegations that YouTube violated a children's privacy law while gathering data to better target its adverts. The US Federal Trade Commission agreed the amount of the settlement against YouTube parent Google, which if approved by the Justice Department would be the largest settlement in a case involving children's privacy, according to a report in the New York Times. The allegations against YouTube were made by privacy groups who said the platform had violated laws protecting children's privacy by gathering data on users under the age of 13 without obtaining parental permission. The FTC is expected to announce its decision on the settlement sometime in September. US regulators have long argued that Google fails to protect children from harmful content and data selection on the YouTube platform. The Center for Digital Democracy said in a statement that the proposed settlement would be woefully low given Google's size and revenue and called on the FTC to enjoin Google from committing further violations of children's privacy law. Google remains the money-making engine for parent company Alphabet, with most of its revenue coming from digital advertising, which accounted for $116 billion of the $136 billion Google took in last year. If we have any update on this story, we will, of course, bring it to you in a future episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. An interesting point of law, which we are currently considering for a client, is when our joint controllers jointly and severally liable for each other's actions. Because as things stand at the moment, it's not clear whether joint and several liability attaches to the actions of joint controllers. GDPR states a data subject may exercise his or her rights under this regulation in respect of and against each of the controllers. While the provision hints that joint controllers may be jointly and severally liable for actions brought by data subjects, it does not state so explicitly. It is perhaps worth noting that prior to the passage of GDPR, the Article 29 Working Party argued that joint controllers should have joint and several liability unless the controllers effectively allocated obligations. Now, it can be argued that joint and several liability for all parties involved should be considered as a means of eliminating uncertainties and therefore assumed only insofar as an alternative, clear and equally effective allocation of obligations and responsibilities has not been established by the parties involved or does not clearly stem from factual circumstances. 
the fact that GDPR itself is silent on the issue could perhaps be indicative of a rejection of the Article 29 Working Party's recommendations. Further, it's, of course, it's worth looking closely at the wording because the wording says that data subjects may exercise their rights against each of the controllers. It does not state that the supervisory authority, i.e. the ICO, may recover administrative fines jointly and separately. And in particular, it doesn't say whether the regulator can recover fines against one controller for the actions of the other controller. And so, as a result, there's an argument being made that even if joint and several liability exists for an action initiated by a data subject, it may not be the case that it exists for an action initiated by the regulator. The European Court of Justice recently provided another hint that joint and several liability may not attach to violations committed by joint controllers in a case of two companies based in Holstein in Germany. While a monetary penalty was not the issue in this case, the court evaluated the level of joint responsibility that might exist between joint controllers and held that, and I quote, the level of responsibility of each of them must be assessed with regard to all of the relevant circumstances of the particular case. The implication, therefore, is that joint and several, i.e. equal, responsibility is not a foregone conclusion when it's only one controller who has violated GDPR. As joint controllers are permitted to contractually distribute the obligations imposed by GDPR, and in fact may have an affirmative obligation to demarcate by contract their respective roles and relationships, when drafting a contract allocating responsibilities, this practice is to show that joint controllers should consider also whether they wish to include indemnification provisions in the event that one is found to be jointly and severally liable for the actions of the other. Now it's, in our experience, becoming more common to find that in fact there are joint controllers for data rather than perhaps the expected data controller, data processor or indeed data controller, data processor, sub-processor arrangement. And it's certainly something we're going to consider into the wording of agreements is to separate the liabilities jointly and severally, which will clearly exist in the case of a data subject bringing a case, but are more specific into where the liability falls should there be a penalty if only one of the data controllers is found to actually be at fault. So some food for thought there, perhaps. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. Regular listeners to the GDPR Weekly Show will know that Microsoft has repeatedly run into issues with European Data Protection Regulations, GDPR, uh, especially, mainly, in fact, due to issues raised by the Dutch uh, Information Commissioner's Office, who actually has advised some Dutch organisations not to use Microsoft uh, Cloud products until... Microsoft bring the storage of the data from those products into European servers rather than into servers based in the US. Well, Microsoft have responded to demand on this and Microsoft have finally decided to 
bring on board two new data centres, actually in Germany, one in Frankfurt and one in Berlin. And Microsoft has already opened similar data centres in Zurich and Geneva. The data centres will be offered to customers with special requirements for security, compliance and data storage, Microsoft have said. These are likely to include customers such as Deutsche Bank, Rode and Schwarz, and probably also the Dutch government departments, which were being advised by the Dutch ICO not to use Microsoft Cloud solutions. Back in 2018, Microsoft were quite adamant they weren't going to do this, but obviously they've listened, I think, to customer demand. Microsoft said that the German cloud is being developed with the support of Deutsche Telekom as a data trustee and should reassure customers that their private customer data is being looked after appropriately and is in compliance with all the strict privacy regulations now prevalent in Europe. Now, while it's good to see Microsoft finally complying with GDPR in its cloud applications, it is perhaps somewhat concerning that only selected customers will benefit from this resource. But hopefully that's just a stepping stone and in the fullness of time, and hopefully that fullness of time won't take too long, then all of Microsoft's cloud solutions will be storing data within Europe and people can rest easy that their data stored on Microsoft cloud applications is being stored within the EU. You're listening to the GDPR Weekly Show with your host, Keith Budden. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode of the GDPR Weekly Show. I hope you found it useful. I hope you found it entertaining. Please do let me know. Let me have your feedback by sending an email to podcast.insurity.co.uk. You can find out more about us at Insurity at www.insurity.co.uk. And I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good week, everybody, and remember to keep your data safe. Check us out on Facebook. The GDPR Weekly Show is an Insurity production. Follow us on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash insurity.